This podcast is brought to you by nbs.fm, the no bullshit podcast network. Today we have an interview with Adam Callow and Jeff Davis, founder and CEO at Molio Inc. For 23 years, Jeff Davis built brands at Procter & Gamble in various leadership roles and in numerous product sectors and in several countries. In fact, more than half of Jeff's career has been outside the US. After retiring from P&G in 2009, Jeff was an angel investor, board member, and eventual CEO of Aurobrush Inc., which pioneered Molio's model and successfully built the Aurobrush Tong Cleaner brand. According to Google, Aurobrush was one of the first companies to build and commercialize a product on a global level, only leveraging YouTube advertising. Aurobrush was also recognized as one of the 10 most iconic ad moments on YouTube alongside billion dollar brands. Then Dentech Oral Care acquired the Aurobrush brand in 2014. Jeff is a rare executive that has run global billion dollar businesses and has also successfully launched two startups with successful exits. At the University of Utah Business School, Jeff serves as adjunct professor of marketing and is a published academic author. I personally found today's interview a super interesting listen and I think you will too. So let's get into this interview with Adam Callow and Jeff Davis, founder and CEO at Molio Inc. Jeff, a huge thank you for giving up your time to be joining us on the podcast today. How are you? I'm terrific. Thanks, Adam. A quick question where I always like to start, especially with Zoom, where people have different backgrounds. I love the background you've got going on in Zoom right now. Where are you in the world right now, Jeff? That's actually a very important one. You know, in this crazy world we're in, we're doing so many Zoom uh, broadcasts. So I try and shake it up. I get tired of my own background. So this is actually a very special place for me. Uh, it's in Pebble Beach in the Monterey Peninsula in California. Um, I believe this is hole number uh, six or seven, but I haven't had a chance a couple times to play Pebble Beach. It's one of my happy places in the world. And uh, so I figured for uh, for my friends, uh, uh, you know, with, uh, with you guys today, uh, a little bit of background at, at a Pebble Beach. I'm afraid there's probably with the, there's a bunch of fires you may know of in California. So it's probably not as beautiful today, but uh, oh, sure no. it was beautiful on this day. I played it. I didn't catch the news and hopefully everyone's okay with what's going on. Um, just a quick segue instantly, Jeff, when we get into it. I, I tried my hardest to get into golf because I got taught at a very young age <laughs> when getting into my career as a sales professional that business takes place on the golf course. Is that actually <laughs> true? Have you done any business on the golf course or is it just a big hobby for you? <laughs> That's a very fair point. Uh, I would say I've done a little bit of business on the golf course. Um, I would say probably though, uh, golf across my big company and startup life has uh, really created more of the relationship that later maybe gets business done. So relationships, certainly, I would say, have been created on the golf course. That's great. Listen, um, I know what you're doing today, but I want to go back to your origin story. Give people a quick whistle-stop tour of the business that you're in today, Jeff. Uh, and let's go back to... Um, Aura Brush is where I want to start because uh, I really had a lot of fun digging into what you did there and how you use YouTube and video. Uh, so do you want to give people an insight to where you are today? And we'll go all the way back to the origin story and go uh, go from there, mate. That's perfect. You know, probably the, the two-minute elevator speech is an unlikely founder, right? And so with your audience, you know, sometimes people wonder. So I uh, was a big company guy, Procter & Gamble, 23 years uh, five different businesses, uh, five different countries, six different businesses, and uh, left in 2009 right after that uh, wonderful little last crisis we went through. 
I was running the global division of uh, P&G Awella Salon Professionals. We had acquired this salon professional business from uh, Wella in Germany. I speak fluent German. I've had a kind of recurring theme through Germany through my life. And I was brought in to integrate that business into P&G. Um, in 2009, P&G, like most corp- corporations, was looking to shed a bunch of overhead and, and drop the early retirement age. And so I technically, 48 years old, 23 years, retired from P&G in 2009. Uh, 15 of my 23 years were uh, international. And so then the next question was, you know, what am I going to do and where am I going to live? Uh, certainly was not done. And, uh, and then the fast forward, you know, you can just never predict um, – what's going to happen. I ended up um, starting, uh, ended up being mentored and coached by a very uh, prominent venture capitalist, uh, Mike Leventhal. He was a former managing partner of the Mayfield Fund out of Silicon Valley, San Francisco. And I always kind of was fascinated with the startup life and small companies. Um, I ran business development for Procter & Gamble and healthcare for, for about a year and was able to check in on these really cool biotech companies, mainly in Silicon Valley and um, other places around the globe, and just kind of was fascinated by it. Never thought I'd be in it. Now, you know, fast forward, I've I passed P&G uh, in my 50s. I became a startup guy and I've spent a lot of time with, you know, venture capitalists and, and my current company, Molio, uh, creative digital agency, um, with a focus on, on uh, taking obscure brands to relevance brands that are out there. We also have an upstream incubation accelerator platform that really kind of validates and helps companies do that. But it all got started, and then I'll pause, with this crazy, crazy Orbrush story, Orbrush tongue cleaner. Um, and so, you know, that was a, I was the angel investor in Orbrush with guidance from my mentor, Mike Leventhal, and ended up becoming the CEO with the founders and it became a, I think, a four-time Google case study about how to launch and create awareness and trial for your product or service in the new digital way. And so just an amazing experience, Adam. Jeff, like there is a world of things that I'm going to try <laughs> and unpack in the time that we've got allotted. And my pen has just been going crazy on my uh, <laughs> my iPad here, stuff that I want to try and unpack. The first thing that I wanted to touch base on, uh, and it's a bit close to home for me right now in terms of coaching, um, I kept hitting a plateau in our business, Jeff, in terms of I couldn't get past the 10 to 12 people mark. And it turns out Mm -hmm. it was because of me as a CEO that I'd hit my ceiling and I needed to develop. When you get early retirement from P&G, what was the, the trigger for you to go and look for a mentor and a coach? And what were you trying to get out of it at that point? Yeah, it's really interesting because... Um, P&G is just a machine for developing and training executives and sales and marketing and supply chain people. I, I forget the stat. I don't know if it's still true today, but you know, P&G uploads more CEOs to, uh, than, than any other company. At the time, I was surprised more than General Electric and others at the time, but just an amazing training ground. And so inside P&G, P&G is an entry-level promote from within company, still really today. Now, it's, it's gone through some transformations, but we're talking about a culture where you have to hire right and you have to train right in order to create the next generation of P&G leaders. So I had a lot of leaders that mentored and coached me, and I knew what good mentoring and coaching was. As I progressed in my career, I began to become a mentor and coach for that next generation of P&G leaders. 
And so when I got out and began the, you know, I made the deliberate decision to move from, at the time, Frankfurt, Germany, where we were living in my last assignment with Procter & Gamble, and we pulled the ripcord, which made no sense, and came back to Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, you know, no, no big multi-billion dollar, you know, CPG companies in, in Utah. Hmm. Um, but it's where I'm originally from. So Procter & Gamble had hired me out of the University of Utah. And so we just decided to literally reboot, reset, and come back here. And I began to hang out with Utah's super innovative on the tech sector, enterprise software, a number of things I was unfamiliar with. And I began to just say, wow, you know, I think I want to go small. I want to go, you know, I was getting recruited to go run, you know, companies, you know, big $100 million companies. And I just decided I, you know, again, at 48 years old, I'm going to reboot and I want to rethink. And I began to just, I put a list together of 20 different people, of friends that I knew uh, and admired, and they began to connect me with people. And I began to interview and talk with these people. And Mike came through a very f- close friend of mine, Andrew Gutman, a guy that I'd met on a Procter & Gamble journey in Toronto, Canada. And he said, oh, you got to meet up with Mike. And Mike, when we first met, it was just amazing. He ended up um, really saying, Jeff, you know, the collision of my world and the collision of your world could be a beautiful uh, collision. And so Mike began to mentor me on venture capital. Had no clue, you know, Adam began to mentor, mentor me on venture capital. He began to connect me with companies. He began to assign me to advise some of the companies in his portfolio. And it was this fascinating world for me. And, and then I began to, and then, again, I would have never invested. I wasn't an angel investor at that time. But he, alongside me, we, we saw this company here in Salt Lake City. They were doing, you know, this is 2009, Adam. So they had launched in August of 2009 what has now become famously on the Google case study, the original bad breath video, how to know if you have bad breath, two minutes and 14 seconds uh, that, that was created in a pool hall in Provo, Utah and became this iconic, uh, one of the 10 most iconic ad moments on YouTube when YouTube announced their 10 years of, of, of being in business. You would know all nine other of those brands. You maybe didn't know Orbrush, and I appreciated that Google gave us the nod because we really were one of the first companies to think about how you use YouTube as a medium to create awareness and trial and build a brand. I really want to, um, uh, for me selfishly, uh, I guess, share what we're doing with uh, product e-commerce and moving into YouTube to get some advice. But uh, yes. y- you mentioned something that I just want to understand. When when you spoke to Mike and he said the collision of our two worlds could be a beautiful thing, what was he referring to? What did he see then? What did he mean yeah. by that? Uh, that's a really good question. So Mike, obviously, uh, you know, being the managing uh, partner of the Mayfield Fund, I mean, one of the preeminent uh, you know, funds for finding technology and and funding ideas and and products and services. And so he just knew that ecosystem so well, uh, venture venture capital and private equity. I, on the other hand, knew a lot about marketing and branding and sales and globalization and, and scale. I had a very deep international background. Most of my time at P&G was spent internationally. And so process and systems and strategic planning, you know, all these things that you, you know, just take for granted that you learn in a, in a company like Procter & Gamble over 20 plus years, the startup world is, is missing that. And so, and I'll give you this point because it's a really good one. Your listeners will get, you yourself probably, Adam, will get this. Um, there is a big gap between enterprise 
and scale companies where you have these process and systems. And then the startup world that is much more limber, much more, uh, you know, uh, moving uh, quickly. And so I always kind of thought, you know, entrepreneurs are just these crazy, you know, uh, throw it on the wall, see what sticks type stuff, et cetera. Well, I came to learn, and, and especially through Mike, that what really good entrepreneurs do is very similar to what I did at P&G. They're just, you know, less encumbered by too much process and system. But I learned that in my first company, Orbrush, that we successfully sold, and in Molio on our, our fifth year now, our creative digital agency, you know, in our fifth year, that there's a certain level of process and system required to free your brain for innovation and thinking and going after it and making it happen. If you've got fundamental tactical little things that aren't right because you don't have process and system in a startup, you are going to be taxed because you don't have a lot of, you know, teams and people around you to help you. So if you don't have a, a sufficient level of process and system set up, you know, you're, you're not going to progress the company. Um, one last thought I'll leave for you, which is fascinating for me. You know, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, you know, about one in 10 made it in the startup world. You know, with all of the technology and all of the learning and all of the lean startup mentality and all of these things, how many make it today versus same. Uh, 20 years ago? It's about the same, Adam. About the same, yeah. Right? It, it's actually fascinating. What is it that one out of 10 do that the nine out of 10 don't do? And I would argue a couple of things. One, they decrease the probability of failing with some basic process and systems that are proven, whether it's the billion dollar P&G division or whether it's a startup. They actually have that sufficiency that guarantees they're probably more likely than the people that don't have it to, to put that in place. The second thing, just simply, I mean, again, it's a bit too simple of an answer, but I have really come to appreciate um, the importance of deep personal relationships where collaboration is preeminent. Mm -hmm. I've had more trouble in acrimony in my little, you know, 10 to 30 person companies than I've had before in my, you know, uh, 50, com com 50 country, you know, 10,000 employee companies. I mean, it matters so much. Uh, Peter Thiel said, you know, Peter Thiel, the famous Facebook in uh, investor, I use it every time I, I'm teaching entrepreneurs. He said that the most important thing you do in starting up your company is whom you started up with. Couldn't agree more. And I more. just thought that was fascinating, right? You, can, you know what I mean. Could not agree more. And um, the, the part of your, the bit there where you were speaking in terms of going from extremely agile as a company to process driven. For me personally, I struggle with that, you know, and in terms of having it as a problem in the business, it's kind of where we are today because we keep hitting this ceiling where we, we want to feel like an entrepreneur. We want to feel like the pirates, but there's a certain level of process that we're finally seeing that we need in the business in order to hire the right people, onboard the right people, give them a chance of success in the company. So that's, that's a, a lesson that I'm learning right now, probably the hard way, Jeff, to be honest with you. Yeah, and Adam, I think you know, just to that very directly, you know, anyone in a startup, the listeners out there that has actually taken the process to hire someone, onboard them, and then find that it doesn't work, that is the most taxing exercise mm -hmm. for anyone that if you don't have a basic process and system in place, you can't guarantee always you're going to get a good one. But there are lots of things you can do to make sure that you know, you're unlikely to have a revolving door with some of the startups and, and hires that you're making. And so I, th I, and by the way, Adam, I think it's been, uh, even with all of my experience, I would say I've made, 
you know, equally amount of mistakes in my startup life as I, as I did in a machine like PNG that had very rigorous process and people systems. One of my favorite uh, reads on this, by the way, is a book, Good to Great Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I happen to have it memorized, pages 52 to 61. He talks about um, how to be rigorous with people, how to be rigorous, not ruthless with people. And it's just brilliant. I mean, anyone that is, anyone that has struggled to know, should I let this person go? Should I fire this person? You know, should I give this person more free reign, et cetera? It's just brilliant. It captures my personal successes and failures so well in those pages. And, and the main premise on that is that when you really believe you've got a problem, you normally in a startup can't carry problems. You've really got to make a move. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and and to your point there, the amount of times that we've had people join the company and it hasn't been a fit, and I've said, oh, I've hired the wrong person, it took a level of self-awareness to say, I haven't got the right processes in place to give that person a chance of success. I might have hired the right person, but just haven't given them the tool set. And that's that's where we're changing this year, to be honest. That's our, that's Well said, Adam. Well said. I to- totally agree with that. Jeff, um, from from your experience, and again, the listeners of this show know that I use this as an opportunity to be relatively selfish, learn from the people that I interview. Um, I really want to speak to you about brands, to be honest, to start with. And I want to get an understanding of, given the fact that you've come from PNG, uh, you've had mentorship from a fantastic VC, and then you've you've gone to actually found your own company. You've gone through a transitional period where a lot of the landscape from a a branding perspective using digital and social, that landscape has shifted significantly in the last 15 years. What do you think makes a solid brand in today's world? And how should people, when they're just getting into business, think about brand? Yeah, it's it's an excellent question in the sense that I can't tell you how many people I talk with, either in advisory or, or um, board roles that I play for, for in the startup space where you know they think they're building an app or they're building a technology or they're building a product look i think it's very important um, language you're building a brand no matter what you're doing you're building a brand and the difference between someone who thinks about building a brand versus building an app or building a product or building an agency is 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 dramatically different and what is it actually you know what is it that, that, that is a brand well in png it was kind of tattooed across your forehead. And by the way, my Orbrush experience validated that it works in a startup, you know, building brand equity. What is brand equity? We hear about it. You know, uh, everyone, every agency talks about it. There are, there are amazing companies that build it and help you create architecture and ID and identity with the brand. But what is brand equity? The simple version I learned at PNG is, you know, it's the essence of what your brand stands for in the hearts and minds of consumers that makes them prefer you versus the, com- the competition or the alternative. Now, let's unpack that a bit. The essence of what your brand stands for in the hearts and minds. Branding and having affinity for a brand is not always a feature and benefit and rational thing. It is very often an emotional thing. And today, Adam, I would argue, it's even more important than ever before in my brand life. Why do I say that? Because Gen Z and millennials don't really care much about the features and benefits as much as they care about who's behind the brand and what's the purpose and what's the cause. So if you are not building that component into the essence 
of what your brand stands for in the hearts and minds of consumers that makes them prefer you, you are not going to be a sustainable brand um, and, and, and be able to, to build that over time. You know, social media and the ability to understand much more about a brand than the traditional means by which you got awareness and trial, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it's a blessing and a curse, right? So as a startup, the beauty of it is you don't need to be a Procter & Gamble to create a global brand. I mean, Little Ore Brush, the case study four times on Google, very purposely, I did nothing but used YouTube to create awareness and trial on that brand. Um, and we took that brand, we created awareness and trial in 25 different countries, by the way. And the amazing part was all in English. You know, we ended up having wholesalers in Japan call us because they had consumers had seen the YouTube video and, 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 you know, ask the retailer or wholesaler and think about the cycle that had to happen there. And they tracked down our little company in Utah and say they wanted to be a distributor for Aura Brush in, in Japan. So it's this amazing ability today, you know, look in the oral care space, who dominates the oral care space? Procter & Gamble with Oral-B and Crest, you've got Colgate, you've got Johnson & Johnson, and Little Ore Brush, you know, we, we, David and Goliath's story, we were creating and using this new medium of YouTube from 2009 to essentially 2015, and we created a global brand with very high affinity brand, you know, if, uh, uh, you think about brand affinity scores and, and MPS, you know, net promoter scores. How do you measure this brand equity we're talking about? How do you measure brand? Several good measures. Those are two I love to use. And, and NPS, you know, net promoter score is one of the easiest. You know, you can, you can be a startup, you can get a quick and dirty read and you can grow it over time. How many people recommend your brand? Would you recommend this brand? It's a very simple measure. Um, so, so anyway, it's, it's honestly, uh, Adam, a super passion for mine. And whether you're starting a brand up or, or whether you're, you're, you're in the marketplace, you're going to, trying to go to the next level, or whether you're trying to scale big brands, brand equity today and branding matters more than anything. And you can create it and you can screw it up because of the various means, social, paid, digital, uh, you know, streaming over the top through videos. You know, that's, that's a big one, OTT we call it being able to, to, to advertise through these streaming platforms, broadcast television, all of those different ways. Um, I was interviewed, I think it was 2012, 2013, right in the middle of the Orb Brush story. I think it was entrepreneur.com. But anyway, they said, Jeff, what's the difference between running you know, marketing in a big multinational like P&G and running you know, marketing in a startup? And I said, the means by which you can today, what's the difference between I, when I did it before and did it then, you know, there were four or five ways to create awareness and trial when I started with PNG 20 years ago, you know, and you know them all, television, billboards, print, radio, magazines. We did have endorsers, you know, like celebrities, is that what it was generally? But today, you can create awareness and trial for a product or service in so many ways. You know, I, I started to write them down. I think I landed on like 30. And by the way, 80% of them were all digital, you know. And here's a new one, podcasts, you know, podcasts, <laughs> you know. Didn't even happen. You know, Adam, we're talking about something. That this, this wasn't a way that you'd create awareness and trial for your product or service. It's one of the fastest growing media medium for, for, for being able to create that is podcasts. People are being educated today on an audio version of podcasts in a major way. Well, 
let's just talk about audio then for a second because obviously we're a big fan of it we enjoy podcasts uh, and to your point about the importance of brand right now how do you think voice plays into this because you look at your alexa and you go hey alexa sorry for everyone's alexa that i've just uh, triggered by the way at home yeah uh, uh, so hey, hey alexa get me a toothbrush compared to hey alexa uh, get me a crest toothbrush or to- crest toothpaste the brand right now is the only thing that is the identifier in voice. Otherwise, Amazon's the gatekeeper and they choose what toothbrush they send you. How do you think brands can now translate into a world where podcasting and, and voice in general is becoming a, a more, more used way to, to make buying decisions? Yeah, I, I think two things I would unpack there that I think you've uh, identified. One is I happen to have, I was at a conference uh, here in Salt Lake City. It's called Silicon Slopes where you know, again, there's quite a big tech group that's emerged here. Um, bit, one of the big things, um, uh, uh, Qualtrics, uh, which is, you know, really now world-renowned uh, way to create uh, awareness and surveys and find do, do research. You know, they, they were acquired by SAP out of Germany. Big, big, biggest tech uh, acquisition, I think it was $8, $8 billion in in tech, happened right here in Salt Lake City. Hmm. And I was at this event, Silicon Slopes, and we happened to have the uh, woman come and, and talk to us from iHeartRadio. And I was just shocked to, to learn. I mean, I knew it was probably the case. Think of your own habits and practices. And I would say US, UK, uh, Europe, uh, probably around the globe, it's, it, it's similarly happening. Think about your own practices today. How many of you have a smart device in your home? Mm-hmm. How many of you are using that smart device to educate you on products or services or educate you on categories? How many of you are actually transacting with these smart devices in your home? Amazon makes it super easy to do that. And she just really surprised me. And she even highlighted that Mark Pritchard, CMO of, of P&G, that they had really come in in a major way and were coming back to this very similar to the way that they'd looked at radio thir- you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and so there's different ways. And I, I think what I would just say to, to your last part is, to your last point is, um, I think it's really evolving right now, right? I mean, so there aren't best, there, 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 there are a number of best practices, but it's very much evolving. And if you take a look at podcaster, she referred to it, by the way, I like the way she referred to it as audio, right? So you think of podcasts, but, but we are getting educated today through audio, audible, you know, uh, books on tape, book, books, on, you know, on tape, um, smart devices, um, uh, obviously, um, you know, iPod, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the iTunes and, and uh, Pandora and, and, and uh, Spotify and, and Apple Music, you know, we are just being um, educated on products and services much more through an audio medium. And so the one challenge I would look at people, I mean, podcasts relative to other digital means for creating awareness and trial, still relatively small right? But if you look at the growth over the last 24 months, and she had a couple of charts that really shocked me and surprised me, you really today need to think about, and, and obviously, Adam, you guys were ahead of your time here. You, you, you guys started uh, you know, this podcast, which has a dual purpose. I love how you talk about it. It helps you build your own business, but you are also creating awareness and trial for, for, for what you do. And uh, that medium will continue to grow. And so how do you use that? Again, frankly, uh, my company, Molio, We've always had a, um, a never-ending interest in what we do and how we do it. Um, we, we've never had a sales group. We've never you know, had outreach to tell people about my company and what we do. It's generally come through my investors, my own network, previous network. 
Um, but we decided to try this because of the first time we're looking to take on a couple of clients. We only take on about two, two, two a year. We have longstanding building relationships with the brands we take on. And we were persuaded. I said, guys, I want to go try, po- I want to go try podcasts. So the reason I'm on Adam's show today is that I saw the puck, you know, moving to a new place. Um, and, uh, and I decided we're going to try that. And I have to tell you, it's been very interesting, very interesting way uh, to, to, to simply learn and get your message out there. And we've had, you know, again, just basic metrics. My company's an analytics, uh, you know, creative and media analytics company. And it's just amazing to me. I get on a podcast and then we have all this traffic to our site. So it's just like a Facebook ad, just like an Instagram ad, just like a YouTube ad. Not quite at the scale, of course, but I suspect that will continue to, to grow. Out of curiosity, uh, if you look at Molio as an example, is when, and especially with your background being um, quite extensive in branding, if you look at predominantly traditional media, and yes, you've got the radio, but brands now haven't really had to consider what their, maybe I'm incorrect, maybe it's just the world that I live in, but uh, especially the people that I operate with in my circles is they've never had to think about what their brand sounds like and their tone of voice. Cause a lot of what it is, it's, it's Facebook ads, it's, it's other messaging print media. And how do you, how do you educate or what are your, have you got any tips or advice of how to think about how your brand sounds compared to just what it looks like? So I think, um, yes. Yeah. I'd love to just hear, yeah. hear you unpack that. It's, it's personally one that's interesting for me right now for, for our core business. Yeah. I, I would say Adam, there's two things. And I'll, and the first one, is an obvious one. It's a core focus of my company. It's been kind of a core focus of my decade now in the startup land with with VCs and private equity companies is, look, one of the most important medium for how you make things happen is is, um, video. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so if you really want to tell a story, you know, if you think about an app or, or anything that has a little complexity and that the elevator pitch is not real clear with a display banner on Facebook. Um, and the reason why I'm going to start out here, because I think audio is the other, other, other shoe to this, which I think people can look at. So I really, we're big, we're, you know, our core of our company is, is video. And we tell stories using the video. We have a number of you know, Google case studies and, and campaigns that have won awards with these centralizing your message in video. And then doing all the traditional stuff. We start out, I, I was quoted, I think it was an adage in 2011. Uh, this is a funny story. I was quoted as saying, start with digital, start with video, start with YouTube. And I remember all my PNG people, you know, laughing and calling and saying, what in the hell are you talking about? You know, well, you know, Adam, we just picked the right horse. And today it's still really good uh, feedback to someone. Start with digital, start with video, start with YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all these other platforms that then introduced video. Now, why do I emphasize that? Because I think what's happening with audio is the same thing. When, when you're talking about a brand and you've got a print medium or you've got some copy uh, on a billboard or, or, you know, wherever you're trying to create your reasons to believe, your points of difference in, or, in your brand or service, in your, in your product or service, video is just a much better uh, communication because you can tell so much more. Now, I would argue probably uh, similarly, and when we've seen that experience, we, we actually – we run um, a campaign for Celestial Teas out of Boulder, Colorado, 50-year-old company that has these all-natural teas and 
businesses just boomed uh, during this uh, pandemic. You know, people like to sit down with a cup of tea. As a, as a, as a Brit, I probably don't need to, you know, talk about how important tea is. You definitely don't. If you, if you knew my wife, you would you know that she's, uh, she's probably drinking a pot of tea as we speak right now. There, there you go. So it's this amazing little company out of Boulder, Colorado. And we, we launched a campaign for them. Digital or video was at the center of that. But we, we, again, for the first time in our model, we call it the Molio method in our media strategy and planning, we incorporated audio. We incorporated some podcasts. We're still, by the way, tying that up. So maybe uh, part two uh, is, is, you know, we'll, we'll, we can tell you the, the details of that. But we know that as part of the mix, of video, search, display. We believe audio needs to be one of those components. And to your point, how you talk about the brand, you know, the points of difference that you can give, the examples that you can give way beyond in an audio description what you could in a more static medium like like a display ad or, or like typing in a search or something like that. So I think what you just said is important. I would argue the core and fundamental point of difference for Molio and our Molio method is to start with digital, start with video, start with YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, um, video as platforms. And why do we say that? Because we learn. We learn a tremendous amount of analytics and data. Who's watching it? What are their ages? What are their demographics? What are their psychographics? And we learn a tremendous amount. Once we get it dialed in on the right creative, you know, we actually measure different creatives, the right copy, uh, again, visually and an audio effect on your brand. Then once we get it dialed in, we have the right creative against the right audiences. Then at now you're ready to scale. And then we'll use some of the other platforms, podcasts, um, OTT, some of these streaming services, even broadcast television at that point. You could even go to that. We rarely do that anymore because it's a bit too much of a of a broader media strategy that you don't need to do today. You could target, hyper-target, and be very efficient with your marketing spend. So, so again, long answer, Adam, hopefully that wasn't too much, but I build upon the audio trend that's going on very similar to the way that we built Orbrush, our first company, with video at the center because it was a better means to educate, convert, articulate points of difference versus your competition and really get this essence of what people stand, what your brand stands for in the hearts and minds uh, of your consumers against the alternative. I guess one thing that you've covered off there, which I think is probably really, you dropped it in as a nugget, but I think it's interesting to unpackage or at least um, make an example of is traditional media would say you've got to try and put one piece of content out that ticks the box and you've got to kind of not hope and pray because you can do some insight but the way that you think about it i assume from molio is the way you explained it is you can test tens hundreds of different types of creative variables images copy how those all mix together work out through the analytics where you get the conversions then take a message that you have confidence in and know works from uh, multiple tests and then deploy it into larger, bigger reach, potential TV, potential radio. But once you've used other platforms to actually identify the message that works compared to creating one ad and hoping and praying it gets the right airtime and it gets the right coverage and hits home. Um, I think it's really important. And we, we do a lot of things with the brands that we work with who still want to put stuff in magazines in our industry. It's construction. They go, well, print media. We, we spend X thousands of pounds a month on print media. And I say, well, how do you know that message is right? And they go, well, these are the seven features. So what we do is we run seven Facebook ads, put one per feature. 
And we go, well, these are the two features people care about. So kill the other five, make your messaging clearer and make it about these two features. And that's some of the benefits that we are getting out of video currently. I can hear our listeners right now thinking, you've got Jeff on here. He's, he's got a video with Aura Brush that I believe has got 20 million plus views. Um, it's one of the view, one of the highest viewed uh, products, um, CPG brand products, that people actually go to the channel to watch the video compared to just being suggested the video. It, it's there. It's, it's, it's definitely made a lot of noise. What tips and tricks, tactics have you got for someone listening to this that says, listen, I'm a, I'm a startup. I'm hearing Jeff right now. I understand I need to do video. Where do I get started with YouTube um, to sort of like put my toe in the water before I go to someone like yourself, Jeff, who runs an agency that can potentially do it for me? How do I try it myself and get a bit of confidence in the platform? What would you? What advice would you give to that uh, that startup? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and I think that. You know, the beauty of today, you know, you take, I happen to have an iPhone 11 right now. The beauty of today is that you can shoot content like we used to shoot a decade ago with a very sophisticated crew of, uh, you know, strategy and content and production. So startups today can really do this. And, and my advice to, to startups is, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you probably want to get a little further along before you engage with a company like Molio and what we do. Going back for just a second, though, is a parenthetical to, to what you said, which is pretty important. The Molio method, as we affectionately call it, really was pioneered by the, my first company, Warbrush. And, you know, for perspective, it was, it was it's, it, today, you know, Adam, so many people do it today. It's, it's you now how you do it and what level of sophistication you do it. Those are the differences today between brands and agencies that, that do that work. But at the time, it's a fascinating part of the Aura Brush story that we were kicking out content on a weekly basis, producing and writing all of that content ourselves. And we were doing it, you know, so you said, uh, I think publicly, I don't know what, I, I should look at that, I haven't done it for a while, what publicly, how many views Aura Brush says it has. I can tell you actually the views Aura Brush probably has today which won't all be aggregated because of all the testing we did, mm -hmm. but it, it would be over 150 million views, okay? Wow. So, so and, and by the way, people think, oh, I remember we would get interviewed by, by the press and they would always characterize it as saying, you know, um, viral sensation aura brush. Well, newsflash uh, startups and all the, all the folks out there. The truth was we had a level of vi virality. What is virality? It means the content was so engaging and interesting that you share it without being compelled to do so or paid to do so. That's, that's what virality is. And everyone would like that, by the way. Everyone, everyone that comes still and talks to us says, Jeff, I'd like a viral video. Wouldn't and I we said, all? Yeah, wouldn't we all, Adam? Wouldn't that just be if I could just put it into my little machine and out comes a little viral video? Well, whether it was Aura Brush, you know, we also did Poopery. Poopery is a very interesting one for your listeners to look up. Again, a very unique zeitgeist story of how that happened in the creative and media scaling of that. But on both of those brands, the highest virality, virality that we got was, I think Poopery had, you know, three or 4% virality, which is very high, by the way. Mm -hmm. But what does that mean? Those other 150 million, it means I paid views. I paid for those views. Now, importantly, paying for those reviews created an e-com business and eventually um, retailers who heard so much about what was going on and consumers going in and asking for the product, which is one of the cool parts of the Orbrush story. And as I said, around the globe that we were then, you know, it was literally that, that YouTube video was creating awareness for that. Um, so now coming back, um, it's actually really important that today 
So, so while we did that, I, again, I think, by the way, I, I, the stats that for the Orbrush case study, I should have memorized by now, but, you know, we tested, you know, 50 different landing pages. You know, th this is back in 2009, 2010. No one was doing this kind of stuff. We tested over 100 versions of the video. Started out, by the way, with long form, up to six minutes. We had people watching complete six-minute videos on Orbrush tongue cleaner on that original bad breath video and we knew we were onto something and then so so to your point what we would do is is once we knew what was relevant on copy and images and points of difference and branding then we'd cut them down to and that's very much the Molino method today we start out with long form cut it down to then the optimal 30 seconds cut it down to the optimal one minute it's interesting today YouTube and Facebook recommendations for best practices still to do it a minute or less. We never launch with a minute. We always launch more than that. And then we find the nuggets and, and narrow those down. And so what can listeners do today to just, you will just do this and you will shock yourself how much you will learn. You know, open up an AdWords account. It's that easy. Little credit card, open up an AdWords account. Go out and shoot a couple of different ideas, just like Adam described. Shoot the five or six ideas. You're sitting there. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone thinks they're right. You know, what I love about Molio and the Molio method in our meetings is, you know, I used to think I knew a lot about marketing and branding. I no longer am so arrogant about, about what I know about marketing and branding because in our model, we just say, okay, nice thought, Jeff, let's test it. And you just go out and you test it. And I've, you know, found that you know, maybe as many as my ideas are, are, are not as good as, as, as they are. And so you can go, you'll load up a few things, do an AdWords account, spend 100, 200 bucks. And you know this, Adam, from what you guys do, you can learn and get directional on how you might think about it very effectively in building your brand with the right elements and the right copy. And by the way, then being able to target against the right audiences. I'll give you one quick one. Orbrush, tongue cleaner. We knew we were onto something, but my investors said, wow, we know you're onto something, but is, it, is this a flash in the pan? Is this a one-time thing? Can you replicate what you've done on Orbrush on another brand? We launched a product called Orpup, tongue cleaner for dogs. You know, everyone knows that your dog has bad breath. So we launched an Orpup via the Molio method and how we did it with this creative and media analytics. And it was shocking to me that we, one of the pieces of copy that we had um, and, and one that we were testing, we, the, the profile against which it was being most successful, and again, this was all e-com, we weren't into retail, we were literally just testing. We didn't even, by the way, make the product until we knew it was going to be a hit. Again, we, I call it reverse marketing. Today, I don't use the term anymore, but it's more for my generation. Reverse marketing meant start with digital, start with video, start with YouTube. No one was doing that, right? I mean, they were bolting on video campaign, uh, digital campaigns, you know, 10 years ago. Well, today, you know, just like you, Adam, most of most people get it that you start there. So, so on the Aura Pub, you know, what we learned was the target audience was, and get this, by the way, where would you get this in a focus group or a, uh, you know, Millward Brown report or a Mintel report? The target audience was women 55 plus that owned a home that were interested in home decor that, that were watching dog videos on YouTube. So that was just the core of it. We had some other parts. That, and when we targeted and found that audience on YouTube, 80% of the time they viewed the Aura Pup video, they clicked through on AuraPup.com and bought. 
it was fascinating. Now, the problem we had with that, by the way, at the time was, guess how many, guess how big that audience was back on YouTube in 2014, 2015. It was a small audience, mm -hmm. right? A small group of people. So while we were converting 80% of them, we still needed to find other scales. And so again, as you talk about your, your question, how can people do that? How can the listeners who are entrepreneurs do that? You can do it. Again, you just do little iteration tests, $100 tests, and you begin to see who's watching. How can we target that, that audience? What is most resonant with that audience relative to what we thought? You know, you can have, it's basically a series of validating a number of hypotheses where you eventually dial something in. And then to your point, you never just launch a 30 and hope it works or you launch a 15 and hope it works or launch a TikTok and hope it works or, or whatever it is you actually launch with a fairly validated premise of what the consumers want and how, how you can reach them and pick them up. Love, love all that, Jeff. And I guess some of the key takeaways to drive home for you guys that are listening in is you just need to get started and do it. Don't use the excuses that you haven't got the right technology because you've got an iPhone. Don't use the excuses that you haven't got an agency to run it, open up your own ads account, go and test it, validate it yourself, start small, and then build on those learnings. And to Jeff's point, trying to disprove your own assumptions is something that I, I think is extremely helpful. Uh, and I wish I'd done it sooner. Uh, disprove your own assumptions and build people around you. Uh, and if you're part of this community, you'll know as part of our, our Slack channel is, is we've actually got a channel in our Slack group where we, we request people to try and punch holes in our ideas because it sharpens our thinking. So find a truth-seeking group of people that are going to try and help you disprove your assumptions before you go and spend too much money on it. Jeff, I, I've got an impression that I could probably spend two hours with you on this call <laughs> and run through this because this is close to my heart. It's something that I'm passionate about. Uh, and maybe in the future, if you've enjoyed being on here, we can get you back to unpackage some more things. Absolutely. Uh, it's been great. Largely because of the company that we operate in Expert Trades, because of what's gone on in the world, we've accelerated our product roadmap and we're now heavily moving into e-com and YouTube and, to and, and product reviews. Um, so I'm going to stay in contact with you off the back of this. I've got the luxury of having this relationship now. If someone's listened to this, Jeff, and wants to learn more about Molio, where can they best find you and more about the company? Let, let's make sure we give it an opportunity for people to go and learn more. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, real simple, you can really connect with us on on Molio's website. So it's www.molio.com. And you can just send us uh, an inquiry there. Uh, I actually uh, field those myself. I have some help as well. But, you know, we, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, th th this arrogant, but hopefully it, it doesn't, you know, we love to match up with the right entrepreneurs and with the right brands. We know what our method does. We know it extremely well. We have a number of case studies. I mean, even the case studies on the site, some of those should look familiar to, to, to even, uh, you know, folks in the UK. One of our really powerful brands is we launched a probiotic dark chocolate out of Belgium and Germany into the US through our methodology. Launched it initially onto Amazon and then I built it out now with a direct-to-consumer. It's called Bouchard Chocolates, bouchardchocolate.com. Fascinating little story of how we launched a a European brand into the U.S. marketplace. Molio's sweet spot is, uh, you know, doing stuff like that. We've taken brands here to other marketplaces because of my background. We've also done really well launching brands into the U.S. Um, 
And so Molio.com is the best place to pick us up. We are, you know, one reason why we're doing this outreach is we're looking to, you know, take on two or three brands, uh, uh, get engagements with Molio or uh, long-term things. I mean, that, that's a, it's a blessing. Most agencies don't last long, but our uh, relationships usually are always uh, two years plus. And, uh, and we create content that lasts long. There's, there's a bit more about, uh, you can learn a bit on, on the Molio website, but, but Adam, thank you for, for the plug. Jeff, I've had an absolute blast. Listen, best of luck in the future. Good luck to you and your team. Uh, and I have no doubt you'll be back on the show because there's a number of things I want to learn from you in the future. Listen, thank you so much for taking the time with me. 